turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5, and unraveling the truth on divorce, dealing obviously with biblical sexuality, and uh, God has a lot to say. This is a message, I was originally, I started my studies on this in June 26th of last year. We're dealing with divorce, remarriage, and coming back to the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and the messages that are therein. As we look at this passage of Scripture, uh, I'm not going to deal with the remarriage tonight. Uh, There's a lot to go on in this passage of Scripture. I've read both sides uh, on this topic, and I said, God, I just want to know what your word says. What is the truth on divorce and remarriage and uh, on sex, you know, biblical sexuality in general. And uh, the Bible is very clear on that. And so we will be discussing that um, this evening and Lord willing next week as well. Matthew chapter 5, 31 and 32, it says here, Jesus speaking on the Sermon on the Mount, which is a sermon about discipleship. Discipleship is uh, if you want to think about it, as a teacher, you are following, you know, you're listening to your teacher, you're wanting to, uh, you know, if you go to university, you want to learn from a particular professor for a particular trade uh, or uh, career field, you learn from that professor and you carry out what they're teaching you, you would be a disciple uh, of that professor and of that, uh, you know, like in the and for my, sin, my sake, the, you know, like the engineering department, I was a disciple of the engineering department. And, uh, but as we think about this, Jesus says, It has been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery. And whosoever shall marry her, that is divorced, committeth adultery. And I want to look tonight at this passage of Scripture in light of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, as we think about this whole thing in general of marriage, I found this quote, and I found it quite amazing. Fatherlessness, children growing up without fathers, is one of the greatest social problems in Canada today. A British study found children are up to 33 times more likely to be abused when a live-in boyfriend or stepfather is present than an intact family. Broken, and this comes from Robert Wellen, Broken Homes and Battered Children. Father deprivation is a more reliable predictor of criminal activity than race, environment, or poverty. He goes on in this study, Father-deprived children are 72% of all teenage murderers, 60% of rapists, 70% of kids incarcerated, twice as likely to quit school, 11 times more likely to be violent, three of the four teen suicides, 80% of the adolescents, which like the teens and those, in psychiatric hospitals, and 90% of runaways are children deprived of a father. The Bible is very serious when it comes to the issue of fatherhood, motherhood, and marriage. The nuclear biblical family is more important than ever for the perpetuation of godliness and truth to a lost generation. God's design has always been for sex within marriage. There is never any clause of the Lord for sexual activity outside of the bounds of marriage. Our society is falling apart because of a failure in marriage as well as a focus. Uh, They're losing the focus upon marriage. God's way is best. Biblical sexuality and marriage is much more than two people coming together and living living happily ever after, which (laughs) marriage is a difficult thing. But marriage is an institution of determination and faith that fundamentally improves Marriage is a difficult thing, but if God is at the lead, it changes society for the better when there's more biblical marriages. And, it is about, and as we think about this, going on in several other statistics, I have wrestled with this passage, particularly that clause, the, the, the exception clause, as oftentimes many people state. And I want to I, want to, I will deal with that, I promise you, I will deal with that. I, you know, if, if it were me, I'm like, well, Lord, can't I skip over this passage of Scripture? And, and I can't. I've got to preach all of God's, will, God's Word. 
In 2002, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention released a report based on a nationwide survey of 10,847 women. They found that 20% of first marriages end in divorce or separation uh, within five years, while 49% of premarital common law relationships will break up within the first five years. When these time frames are extended to 10 years, 62% of common law relationships break up while just 33% of first marriages end. Now this is 2002, it's only much worse today. But over many weeks of last year as I was looking at the Sermon on the Mount, I came upon this passage of Scripture and I said, Lord, I, I cannot just haphazardly deal with this passage of Scripture. This is an issue that there's some great divide on. And I wanted to hear the arguments, look at the scriptures, say, is there anything for a justification for the position which I myself would like to go with? But as I looked at the scripture, I had to understand God has, God, God said it. If God said it, it's settled. As we think about this idea of biblical sexuality and the exercise of our God-given rights, it does not permit us to cater our views to suit the whims and the dictates of a degenerate society nor bow to the theological predecessors on both sides of the aisle. Our responsibility is to look at the Word of God and based on this alone form a conviction and doctrinal position. Now, if I talk about a conviction, a conviction is something in your life that does not change with circumstances, nor is it susceptible to cultural tides. Some preachers will be dogmatic on one position. And I heard about a preacher when his child went through this very thing of the divorce, he changed his position on it. To say I've wrestled on this position because I, I thought, well, there's good, you know, I've seen men on both sides and I said, well, maybe I'm missing something. And I would love to be accepting of a certain person's predicaments that predicated or that preceded what led up to a divorce. But every time as I came to God's Word, I said, I don't know how to see it otherwise. Biblical truth is truth irrespective of what I think or you think. Divorce and remarriage is an issue that centers on the most intimate of all relationships. It creates tremendous emotional pain. A pain that I would say would be without parallel for those who would go through such. And I hope my desire as I go through this is to deal very tenderly but dogmatically with what God says. The Bible tells us in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God as profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished into all good works. God has given us His Word, the Bible, that we would live a life pleasing before His sight. This is a sensitive topic. And if you find yourself, as I go through this sermon, in contrast with God's Word, know this. I'm not against you. I don't harbor ill will towards you. God's Word is designed for us to see our decisions, and if they are noted as being sinful, to repent and then get back in the fight for the Lord. As far as I know, as I've looked at this, I've looked at every passage in the Scripture that deals with marriage and divorce. And I've looked at them and looked at them. I've weighed the arguments, looked at the cultural context, and my endeavor is to preach the whole counsel of God's Word. And so before we delve into this, it's important to look at the con... Before I really delve in with that exception clause and all of that in the Scriptures, I want to just note the outline 
of Matthew chapter 5, particularly after the Beatitudes. There's something that is so revealing in the placement that Jesus mentions this marriage and divorce and remarriage here in this passage of Scripture. There are some questions that will help us to determine the correctness of divorce as well as attitudes surrounding those who may carry through with divorce. Before you jump to any conclusions on anything I'm saying, I'd ask that you'd hear me out. When we look at the metrics for divorce, we can, become, we can easily become to a biblical conclusion that is in alignment with all of God's word. Now, I want to ask you this question. Can you agree with me that God created sexuality and he has established the bounds for it? I would say if you could say, did God create what is known as romantic intimacy? God did. He created the bounds for it to occur. We start with this premise. Now, may we let God's word show us true biblical sexuality and thereby agree and live out what God says. I want to look at just the foundation of marriage, first of all, uh, this evening. Marriage, uh, before we go any further, let's open up in a word of prayer. Did I pray already? can't remember if I did. <laughs> we'll open up in a word of prayer as I, before I go any further. I can't remember if I did or not, but I'll open up in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I need your help. Lord, I pray that you'd guide my thoughts, direct them to be pleasing in thy sight. Lord Jesus, help us to be found faithful. Lord, I pray that if there's any error in what is stated, Lord, you would change the thoughts and change the mind. Father, I just pray that as this is a very sensitive topic, Lord, that you'd help me to deal with it in a way that would be pleasing to thee. Lord Jesus, I love you. That's the endeavor of my heart, is to be true to you above all else. Lord, help us this evening to be pleasing to you and honoring you and get a biblical position on what you have called to be marriage, sexuality, and may we be pleasing in thy sight. Father, I love you and thank you. In Jesus' precious name I pray. Amen. The foundation of marriage, if you turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2, the first book of the Bible and second chapter, as we deal with this uh, idea here on the foundation of marriage. When did God institute marriage? Who is marriage between? Now, I looked up on this, marriage was instituted by God. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. Verse 24, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife. There is the romantic intimacy there, and they shall be one flesh. But it's a bond of intimacy that is within the covenant of marriage. The covenant of marriage is a promise I make to you till death do us part. You make to me till death do us part. My wife and I, uh, till death do us part. This is what God created. Now, marriage is a contract, it's both civil and religious, by which the parties engage to live together in mutual affection and fidelity till death shall separate them. Marriage was instituted, this is Webster's 1828 Dictionary, was instituted by God himself for the, perver, by, for the purpose of preventing the promiscuous intercourse of the sexes, for pr promoting domestic felicity, and for securing the maintenance and education of children. Children that have a mom and a dad in a home living together within the bounds of marriage, is the, is, that is God's design. In Genesis chapter 5, verse 2, male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. It says, and called their name. There's a plurality here, Adam and Eve. There's the Adam and Eve coming one flesh. They're spiritually united. They're physically united. They're one flesh going through life together. And if God so gives them children, to raise those children together. 
Marriage is sanctified by God. That word sanctified means to set apart. Marriage is set apart by God. There would be like in the Catholic Church, it says in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats. The Catholic Church doesn't allow their priests uh, or their nuns because they say they're marrying to the church. And there's been a lot of problems with that. That is unbiblical to forbid marriage. If God, if you have within your heart, and you, you know, not being married, a desire to be married, God says, get married. If you don't have a desire to get married and it's just not one of your things, then don't get married. But it's not this idea that some, uh, this is, I mean, and we find that as the church, the Catholic church, as I speak about, they're not, anyways, it's ungodly to forbid. And all of this is, I mean, it's just bred a whole bunch of massive hurt. I mean, look at all the scandals. I mean, you find in all, all types of churches, you find scandals of sexual nature. It's because man goes outside of that which God designed. And marriage is a monogamous relationship. God gave Adam one wife. Now, I want you to notice with me something here in Genesis chapter 2, verse 22. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. I want you to notice with me where Eve was taken. God says, I took her out of her ribs. I like what this one commentary, J. Carl Laney, he says, and he quotes, the Jewish Talmud says, God did not create woman from man's head that he should command her, nor from her feet that she should be a slave, but rather from his side that she should be near his heart. Woman was not to be man's slave, but rather his helper. The word helper is used of God elsewhere in Psalm 33.20 and Psalm 146.5. So woman is obviously not an inferior being. She is man's counterpart, absolutely equal. Agreeing with him mentally, physically, and spiritually. Divinely designed to assist the man in all activities of life. Exercising, including exercising dominion over creation, raising children, worshiping God. Man and woman equal. God says, listen, I've created you a companion. There's nothing greater than when you can have a spouse at your side walking with you and her, best, and her desires are your best interests and your desires are her best interests. Now the Bible does tell us, he, Ephesians 5.22, Wives, submit yourselves and your own husbands unto the Lord, but, I want you to notice, sometimes think, people say, well, past, pastor, then you're just saying that men need to walk all over women. That's ungodly, okay? That is not what I'm saying. I want you to get that right now. That is not. She is equal to him. But in any organization, there always needs to be a leader. Someone to say, listen, if the buck falls, if something happens, if you're in a business, there's a boss, because there's a boss, does it mean all the employees are lesser beings? No. They're all doing the work for that business, okay? It also tells husbands in 1 Peter 3, 7, Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them, your wives, according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel. We understand that by and large, physiologically, women are physically weaker. There are some that there are exceptions to that on both sides, okay? So, <laughs> but, by and large, I mean, that's the, the big issue today in a lot of these sports is having these uh, transgenders coming over, trying these biological men that are competing in women's sports, and they're winning. There's a difference in their muscle. There's a difference in their skeletal structure. They're different, and God says, husbands, you have a responsibility to take care of your wife as a weaker vessel. You are her protector. This is God's divine order. He's established it for the home and the family. The same order exists in the Trinity as God is the head of Christ, so man is the head of woman. Submission and priority does not suggest inequality for Christ was submissive, yet he was equal with the Father. Jesus is God. Marriage involves the headship of the husband over the wife. 
For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he's the Savior of the body. And it also tells us, Ephesians 5.25, Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. He says, Husbands, you need to be the sacrificial, unconditional lover of your wife, and you need to... And then it goes on to say, verse 28 of Ephesians 5, So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. How do you take care of your body? God says, if you love your body, you better take care of your wife that same way. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. Now, this is what God's given us. He says, if you want to have a godly marriage, husband, your, best, your desires are to make, take care of your wife and love her as you love your own body. You're sacrificing for her. You're looking out for her security and her, her significance. She needs value and you give that to her. Now one of the things that we find in the scriptures is polygamy. But polygamy violates the principle of one flesh. Polygamy being more than one wife. I don't know how anyone could do more than one wife. I, you put all your heart into one. I don't know how you could do two. It just, but we also find that God forbade multiple wives. Deuteronomy 17, 17, Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away. You, God says, one man, one woman for life. However long, if one spouse dies, then obviously, you know, for the life of each person, right? Each partner. But you're together, loving each other, caring for each other, trying to do the best interest for that other person. It is a relationship that is the tightest relationship you'll ever get. Marriage is only to be a heterosexual relationship, one man, one woman, for life. Would we agree that any relations and thoughts of intimacy only be had within the bounds of marriage? God said, you know, God gave this. God said there's only two genders. There's men and women. If you look at an animal, it's a male or it's a female. I mean, you go out and look at the cows, and a cow has udders, you're not going to say, wow, that's a nice bull. They're different. There's two genders. I don't care how many the world says there are. There's two genders. You might have more than one genders up here, but if they look at the body, there's two genders. God established the intimacy. And the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, that that intimacy, now concerning the things wherever you wrote unto me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That touching, he's talking about outside of the bounds of woman, outside of the bounds of marriage, excuse me. And in that 1 Corinthians chapter 6, just before we get to 1 Corinthians 7, where he says, don't touch a woman, that touching is obviously the, the very romantic, physical touch that leads up to intimacy. But he says, don't even do that. But just before this, in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 15, I want you to look with me here. I'm just kind of laying some foundation uh, for what Jesus bringing in, coming into marriage, laying some truths of what God has established. And, and it does all tie together, and I, I, I hope you'll, you'll see this. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. It says, verse 15, Know ye not that your bodies are the member of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them the members of an harlot? God forbid. What? Know ye not that he which is joined to an harlot is one body? For two saith he shall be one flesh. But he that is joined in the Lord is one spirit. Flee fornication. That word fornication means all physical intimacy outside of, the, outside of marriage. Every sin... So this is 1 Corinthians 6, 18. Every sin that a man doeth is without the body, but he that committeth fornication sinneth against his own body. Now, this is not an unpardonable sin. This is something that God forgives. What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not your own. 
For you are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. The truth he's saying here is he says, listen, Christian, you ought not to be partaking in physical intimacy outside of marriage. That's where it's meant for. That's what I've designed it. He says, listen, if you're a Christian, I've bought you. When I died on that cross and you put your faith and trust in me, my spirit lives within you. My spirit speaks with your spirit. God's spirit lives within the Christian. A Christian is to be different than someone who's not a Christian. And so if God has designed the, if I, as I mentioned, one man, one woman for the life of the partners, life of the spouses. So by process of elimination, if it's one man, one woman for life, by process of elimination, then God is against, I don't care what the world calls marriage, if it's not what the Bible says, it's not marriage. In Leviticus chapter 20, verse 13, if a man also lie with mankind, as he lieth with a woman. He said, if two men come together, both of them have committed an abomination, they shall surely be put to death, their blood shall be upon them. Now that's Old Testament. I'm not saying that's what we do now. Romans chapter 1 also talks about this. And likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman, burning their lusts one to another, men with men working that which is unseemly, and receiving in themselves that recompense of their heir which was meet. And we understand this, that in this community, the whole LGBTQ community, which is a self-worship, in this community, there is much higher uh, rates of AIDS and diseases and all sorts of things that you do not find in a relationship between man and woman. In addition, the Bible tells us all physical intimacy is one man, human man, and one female human. That means relations with animals is out. Leviticus 20.15 talks about that. Marriage involves a public leaving of parents. Mom and dad aren't butting in to the relationship. They're not saying, well, he's this or she's this. Ah, oh, she's, ah. Uh. No. It's a husband and wife. It's a sacred relationship. They deal with the problems themselves. Now, obviously, sometimes in marriage, there's some real struggles that ensue, and, and they do reach out for help. Marriage is a relationship with binds, and it binds a couple until death, right? Mark chapter 10, verse 9, What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And we understand this. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 also talks about this, and this idea, till death do us part, and into the married command, yet not I, but the Lord. Look with me at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10. 1 Corinthians, there in the New Testament. So God gives us two options for someone who may be divorced. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 and 11. I will get to the exception clause next week, okay? So I'm not trying to jump around it. But I, I, I'm, just, I'm, I'm just trying to go through some essential points what is marriage? What is intimacy? What does God expect? And as we look at this and understand this, lay this foundation, it will help us to understand this exception clause that is here and how do we deal with it biblically. Okay? 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 and 11, And to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, let not the wife depart from her husband, but and if she depart, let her remain unmarried, or be reconciled to her husband, and let not the husband put away his wife. God says reconcile or remain unmarried. But pastor, if my spouse cheats on me, am I free to divorce them? I'll answer that next week. Did Jesus give permission through quoting Moses for the dissolution of marriage and the subsequent remarriage for, to someone else? Going on here in verse 12 of 1 Corinthians 7. But to the rest speak I, not the Lord. If any brother hath a wife that believeth not, and she be pleased to dwell with him, let him not put her away. And the woman which hath an husband that believeth not, and if he be pleased to dwell with her, let her not leave him. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified by the wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Else were your children unclean, but now are they holy. But if the unbelieving depart, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God hath called us to peace. And I will deal with this. 
But God's plan for the church age is no divorce. God hates divorce. Divorce is painful. It hurts. I don't know if you've ever been in, around it or involved in it or a party to it, whatever. It is painful. And God gives us some things that we need to deal with. Now, God does give, God does give liberty to remarry. Marriage is a divine vocation. The exclusivity of marriage. In Hebrews 13.4, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers God will judge. This word undefiled means unspoiled and pure. It is a relationship. It's one man, one woman. There's no other partners. It's one man, one woman for life. You're saying, when you say I do, you're saying I don't to everyone else. I do to one, I don't to everyone else. And the Bible tells us to keep our hearts, if we love God, we'll guard our minds, we'll deal with it. You know, and this idea of whoremongers is this sexual immorality and indulging yourself. The Bible tells us, in Exodus 20, 14, thou shalt not commit adultery, no romance novels, fantasizing. And Jesus here in Matthew chapter 5, he would deal with this. Because in just before this, in this passage of Scripture, he said, whoever looks upon a woman... He says, if you're thinking about physical intimacy in your mind with, a, with, with someone, someone else, God's saying, listen, that's wrong. If it's not your wife, that's wrong. Exodus chapter 20, verse 7, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife. Hey, if there's someone else's wife, and somehow in your mind it's come across, she's more attractive than my wife, you need to say, my wife is the one God gave to me. It's not this comparison, well, uh, well, I can dream. No, 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 you can't, Jesus says. And understanding this, that marriage, it protects wives, but it protects children. It gives them stability. God also, he thought so highly of marriage that in Deuteronomy chapter 20, verse 7, he says, a man is not to enter into battle or go to war or be in the army for the first year. That first year of marriage is sacred. And the privilege of marriage is that it is sacred. It is a place where there is to be true love. I understand there's many marriages that are not. And I want to just take the next few moments here to, as we look at some of the tests for divorce in light of the Sermon on the Mount. The Beatitudes of Jesus Christ are how to be a disciple in this world, how to make a difference for Christ, right? Let your light so shine before men that may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. Uh, we find, you know, be the, be the light of the world. We find all of these. The entire Sermon on the Mount deals with those who truly want to show Christ to the world. So I want to look at several things. How does Jesus start off this Sermon on the Mount? I, I said all of this to just establish a foundation. There's a lot more I could have said, and I skipped over several things. But in verses 21 through 26, I want you to look with me here. What does Jesus do? So just... On this passage of Scripture, we look at all of Scripture, right? Based on this passage, if my spouse cheats on me, can I divorce and remarry someone else? If we look at this passage of Scripture. I want to look at this. Verse 21. You have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not kill, and whosoever shall kill shall be in danger of the judgment. But I say unto you that whosoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whosoever shall say to his brother Raka shall be in danger of the council. But whosoever shall say to shall say, Thou fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if thou bring thy gift to the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath aught against thee. If you have conflict against another believer, someone else, the Bible tells us, verse 24, Leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way. First be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. God says, listen, first of all, I don't want, I don't want your gift. I don't want your sacrifice. I don't want your service until you make it right with the person to whom you wrong. I don't want it right if you haven't made it right. I don't want, I don't want any part of you 
in your service. I don't want your gifts. I don't want your talents unless you make it right with your spouse. That's what he's saying here. Because if someone's going to divorce, there's some irreconcilable differences. There's something that's precipitating that's saying, I don't want to be with that person anymore. Forgiveness frees us from the spiritual bondage of hatred, resentment, and a desire for revenge. Forgiveness accepts repentance without judging reason. I want to, reaching the heart to forgive, I I like this story, but I newspaper columnist George Crane told the story of a wife who came into his office wanting to divorce her husband. She said, I do not only want to get rid of him, I want to get even. And before I divorce him, I want to hurt him as much as he has me. So Dr. Crane suggests a brilliant plan. He says, go home and act as if you really love your husband. Tell him how much he means to you. Praise him for every decent trait. Go out of your way to be as kind, considerate, and generous as possible. Spare no efforts to please him, to enjoy him. Make him believe you love him after you've convinced him of your undying love and that you cannot live without him. Then drop the bomb. Tell him that you're getting a divorce. That will really hurt him, said this gentleman. With revenge in her eyes, she smiled and exclaimed, Beautiful, beautiful, will he ever be despised. And she did it with enthusiasm. For two months, she showed love, kindness, listening, giving, reinforcing, sharing. When she didn't return, Crane called. Are you ready now to go through with the divorce? Divorce, she claimed. Never. I discovered I really do love him. Her actions had changed her feelings. Motions resulted in emotion. Emotion. The ability to love is established not so much by fervent promise as often repeated deeds. The Bible tells us, commit that works to the Lord and thy thought shall be established. You know what, sometimes the divorce, things have happened, but you just begin to grow apart. You stop dating. You stop enjoying life together, and you begin to just focus on maybe the kids, or focus on other things, and you just forget to enjoy one another. A lack of forgiveness, Matthew 6, 14, 15, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. If a divorce is going to happen, you're saying, I'm not willing to forgive. Now, there might be very extreme cases where, for instance, someone is incredibly abusive. Separation is warranted with the idea and the goal of reconciliation. I don't know the extremes, but you can separate. Now, I want to ask you this question. What are the circumstances which are allowed for unforgiveness and divorce when it's warranted? When does the Bible say, I don't have to forgive? When can I withhold forgiveness from someone else? I've heard some say, well, I'm going to lose everything if I don't divorce them, okay? So what if I will lose everything? They're defiling my character before others. What is my response? Look with me at Proverbs 25. This is just God's word on how to deal with someone that's in conflict with us. The Bibles tell us, I'm not dealing with the exception clause. I will deal with that, I promise you. But this here in Proverbs 25 21 and 22. What does God say when someone is giving me a hard time? When someone is treating me not well? What does the Bible say? You know what? I don't like this passage of Scripture, if I, if I want to tell you in all honesty, from my own personal perspective. I, I don't like this, but it's what God says, and I just have to say, Lord, that's the best way. In Proverbs 25, verse 21, if thine enemy be hungry, punch his lights out. No, it says, if thine enemy be hungry, give him bread to eat. If he be, and if he be thirsty, give him water to drink, for thou shalt heap coals of fire upon his head, and the Lord shall reward thee. Wow. The Bible also says in Romans chapter 12, Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. That's verse 19 of Romans 12, Romans 12, 21. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. 
There's an unmerciful servant you can look at where there's lack of forgiveness. But in all of this, the first question as we look at the Sermon on the Mount is Jesus deals with the divorce. Number one, is this divorce happening because you're not forgiving? There's irreconcilable differences. They have hurt me so much, I have to go through with this. Now, it could be on the opposing party where they're divorcing, and that's, a total, that's on them, between the Lord, them and the Lord. But your case, is there anything I've done to her or you know, her or him, to whatever the, you know, the opposite gender is in the relationship, but the spouse, have I hurt my spouse in a way that I'm not forgiving them? And I'm seeking to be separate from them. Number two, the Bible tells us, you have heard, verse 27 of Matthew 5, you have heard that it was said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. God says, listen, you got to deal with your thought life. Stop thinking about a woman from a romantic perspective with which you would like to get into bed. People are not objects. To fulfill my lust. God's called us to service to others. Now I'm not saying, you know, Job 31.1, I made a covenant with mine eyes, why then should I think upon a maid? Pornography is just unbiblical. So number one, are you forgiving? Number two, what's your thought life? You say, well, my thought life's not very good. Then, then just on this, God's saying don't divorce. Number 20, verse 29, And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. He's saying, listen, if there's something in your life, now he's talking about an eye and all this, but if there's something that is causing a, a, a lustful sensation in your life and it's a continual problem, he's saying, cut it out of your life. Essentially, he's saying, don't put a stumbling block. Are you doing something to your spouse that's creating a stumbling block that's hurting him or her Right, Romans 14, 13, let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a stumbling block or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Where, number three, are you putting anything in your spouse's way to hurt them? And I'm talking about, it could even be your attitude towards them. Number four, verses 31 and 32, Christ's teaching on marriage and divorce. I will talk more about this. But Mark chapter 10, verse 9, what therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. If you're a human, God says don't put it asunder. Don't break it apart. So coming further, Matthew 5, 33 through 37, notice he starts off with forgiveness and reconciliation. That's the first thing he starts with. Then he comes <laughs> to your thought life. Because our thought life towards my spouse, I could get angry with her or frustrated with her or vice versa. That's a thought life thing. That's a thing that up here I need to deal with. Verses 33 through 37. After he's talking, now verse 31 and 32, he talks about marriage and divorce. Verse 33, again, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shalt perform unto the Lord thine oath. But I say unto you, swear not at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, neither by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. God's saying, don't forswear. That forswear, what do you do on the altar? What do you do? Like when I, my wife and I got married, I said I do to her. She said I do to you. Uh, I do to me, excuse me. And, uh, you know, I made a promise right after he's talking about marriage and divorce, he talks about promises. Hey, you make a promise, be a person of your word. I mean, he's given us the formula. So can I divorce? No, because I'm not fulfilling the promise I made before God. If I don't deal with bitterness, my thoughts are defiled. Notice this. I want to show you something really cool here. And I'm trying to hasten through this. This is just part one. There's so much I could deal with. And I didn't want to... Anyways. <laughs> this is just looking at the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not looking at the other stuff yet. We will. 
But just look. Forgiveness, number one. Thought life, number two. Holiness and separation, number three. Then you come to marriage and divorce. Right after marriage and divorce, he says, hey, be a person of your word. Don't be a liar. The grounds for any divorce is getting slimmer and slimmer. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 15. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby be, many be defiled. What happens after the root of bitterness get in? It says, lest there be any fornicator. Oftentimes when someone, when a lot of this bitterness, not oftentimes, but sometimes it occurs, that someone will end up endeavoring into, my spouse is bad, my spouse is not pleasing me, they're not fulfilling me, I don't love him or her anymore. Um, you begin to, then you begin to fantasize about other things. You're letting your mind go into that which is forbidden by God. It's a me-centric, it's all about me. I need my senses satisfied. I need to be helped. Then look with me what God says right after this, here in Matthew chapter 5. The next thing. What does he say next after the oath? Verse 38, you have heard that it's been said, an eye, and an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if a man will sue thee at the law and take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. What happens in divorce many times? It's a taking of the goods, splitting of the house. Whew. Jesus understands marriage. And if a man will sue thee at the law, I take away thy coat, let him have thy cloak also. And whosoever shall compel thee to go a mile, go with him twain, give to him that asketh thee, and from him that would borrow of thee, turn not away. Just here, he says, listen. You look at all the circumstances surrounding divorce here, he's saying there are no conditions. And then last of all, verse 43. You have heard that it's been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. That's normal, right? You like your neighbors, you like your friends, your enemies. I hate them, right? That's kind of the idea of if they're an enemy, they're not my friend, right? But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth rain on the just and the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, Right? If I only love my spouse when she loves me, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same. He says, you know what? The world loves those who love them. And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. This whole idea of, number one, this repaying injustice, vengeance, eye for an eye, he says, no. Are there ever any, are there ever any harsh things said in marriage? I would think if you've ever been married, most people would say yes. Is marriage unfair at times? There's times that she's doing, you know, I'm not doing, I'm not carrying my weight or she's not carrying her weight. Are there times where things may not be equal? Yeah. Is marriage hard? Yeah. You have two people who are, have two different ideas on how life ought to operate and they're working together to raise a family, to love God, to move forward. And then verses 43 through 48, God basically essentially tells us, be a light to the world. How do you deal with your enemies? So if we take all of these logical organizations of thoughts and divorce, what would cause a divorce? Number one, irreconcilable differences, immorality, controlling parents, drugs or alcohol. It's just too difficult to care for you. You have too many physical problems, I just can't care for you. It's draining me. Uh, abuse, right? Physical, psychological, emotional, spiritual, career impairment. If I, get, if I stay married to you, I can't progress up the career ladder. And the list goes on. So is the breaking apart of one flesh ultimately the act of unforgiveness? To that I would say yes. Now, in the case of a man who maybe becomes a pedophile, there might be some legal reasons on some things. If there's infidelity in marriage, does this break the command on our thought life? Yes. Was I wrong to have allowed my thoughts to go unchecked and not have removed the stumbling blocks from my spouse? Yes. Is remarriage a breaking of your vows or covenant to your first spouse who's still living? Yes. Am I returning an eye for an eye or getting even by going through with this divorce? Yes. Will a divorce help me to stand out as a light in the world? 
How can I bless the one who's cursing me? How can I pray for the one persecuting me? In conclusion, we've looked at God's plan for marriage, his restrictions and bounds for sexuality, the exclusivity of marriage. As the creator, God created sex and the bounds for lawful activity. He is clear for the bounds of of marital intimacy only within marriage. As we come to this passage of Scripture on the Sermon on the Mount, we find the formula for living life, being spiritually successful. And as we evaluate this passage tonight in light of marriage and overall discipleship, the sermon deals with how to deal with conflict, how to deal with emotional pain, how to deal with our thought life, how to deal with uh, demands of our diligence to our commitments, right? Be a person of your word and how to emphasize a preeminence on showing others Christ in your marriage. Christian, we must have a firm conviction about marriage, sex, other wives. Our testimonies will only darken the path of the lost towards the pit of hell. Final quote, I'm done. A great without has been written on heathenism. Men and women are toiling without a Bible, without a Sunday, without prayer, without songs of praise. They have rulers without justice, without righteousness, homes without peace, marriage without sanctity, young men and girls without ideals and enthusiasm, little children without purity, without innocence, mothers without wisdom or self-control, poverty without relief or sympathy, sickness without skillful help or tender care, sorrow and crime without a remedy, and worst of all, death without hope. Jesus says, and this whole thing, he kind of puts a sandwich right in the center of that sandwich. He starts off with forgiveness, and then he deals right at the end. Love and pray for your enemies. You know what? In marriage, sometimes you can have some conflict. That's why when Jesus helps us to love our enemies, it's not a natural thing. He starts with forgiveness, and he ends with forgiveness. This whole process, if you want to say, can I go through divorce, just look at this and say, am I forgiving them? Am I, is there anything unforgiving? You know, you just go through that. Ask yourself this. You know what? God's given us the formula. And we need to follow it. Maybe there's something in our lives that we need to deal with outside of what I've spoken about tonight. But nevertheless, God hates divorce. It hurts families, hurts husband and wife, it hurts children, it hurts society. We need to see what God says. Stick by it and say, Lord, I'll follow what you want me to do. I guarantee when we do it God's way, there's always the greatest blessings from God. May we be steadfast to honor him. With heads bowed and eyes closed this evening, and... uh, Let's do a time of quietness. No music this evening, but I just want to encourage you. I don't know if anything has stuck out in your mind. First of all, do you know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior? If you were to die tonight, where are you going to go when you take your last breath on this earth? Do you know for sure Jesus as your Savior? Number two, what is your thoughts? You know, maybe if things don't work out, I'll divorce. That's not God's thinking. That's not true. being true to our commitments. That's not biblical. That's not being forgiving. We need to just say, God said it. He's going to help me to fulfill my commitments in honor.